So we're um, coming to the end of our retreat. We're not quite at the end yet, but um, this is our last evening together. It, um, it feels like it's gone quickly, but I also feel like I've been here forever. <laughs> it's kind of something about these retreats that... You, it's like going into a zone and you just feel like you can never quite get out of it again. <laughs> but it's been really delightful actually to, I feel, um, I think all Sharada, Kisara and myself have, have been really um, touched by how hard people have worked and how much you've applied yourself to the practice. And even in this short space of time, how much uh, work has happened coming uh, as one uh, Tibetan teacher, Chogwam Chumpro, used to say, meditation is the art of uh, becoming realistic, becoming real. So we have been becoming real with our lives here these last few days, reflecting on uh, coming. It's another one of our... um, monastic friends used to say, coming eyeball to eyeball with our karma. (laughs) this is it folks (laughs) no escape (laughs) so it's um, you know it's it's challenging isn't it it's uh, it's both sublime really delightful to hear Kitty Sorrow's Dharma last night leading us eventually on the journey to the deathless and touching into the taste of this profound peace. It's always here and now, but it eclipses is our recognition of it because of the momentum of what moves through the heart, how compelling that is, as we've been reminded. So it's, been, uh, it's, it's had moments of really being out of taste, some perhaps ease, some freedom, or even some sense of profound peace. When we taste that peace, we recognize the fundamental immovability of the heart, the aware heart, the awareness. It's actually mountain-like, immovable. It's space-like, but it's also unshakable. Everything else is quaking and shaking, especially in San Francisco. (laughs) The quaky, shaky city. (laughs) Which is so cool, of course. (laughs) So it's been, you know, it's been so many different realities that we've been uh, able to touch into. And as Ajahn Chah encouraged, as we've been reflecting and drawing so much on Ajahn Chah's presence and teachings during this retreat, the encouragement to just touch and let go to learn not how to get so bound up with what visits us in the mind, so compelled and so obsessed and so driven and so overwhelmed and so caught up and so reactive. But with this cultivation of mindfulness, of presence that we've been developing, to have the skill of just being able to touch and bless and receive and contemplate what arises in the moment to see into the deep, deeper nature of what is present, and within that touching and recognition also the art of letting be or letting go. 
So this is a, a paradox, and this is a little bit what I'd like to talk to this evening, because it's come up so much in our group discussions, is how to hold this paradox within the teaching of the encouragement to let go, to taste peace. And when we taste that, you know, one's reluctant to, to move out from that. You know, it's, it's very challenging to think about going back. Well, some of you might be dying to get out. <laughs> I've had my moments as well. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, you know, when we have moments of really tasting the peace, the fundamental peace of the heart, it's so delicious. It's hard to feel like one wants to get out there in the fray again, you know. Sometimes when I just like just these few days I to look at a few emails occasionally and I sort of look at the internet and the emails and I actually feel like being sick (laughs) because there is something about it that just keeps one hooked in, you know, and yet in everyday life I don't feel like that, I just go and do it, you know, whatever needs to be done. But in contrast to the to the sort of space, the samadhi that we develop here in these retreats. You know, it's, it's, it is a paradox how to actually keep reflecting on this profound teaching that's encouraged by the Buddha of, of releasing the heart from its attachments and yet the very engagement in the world uh, means that we become attached. We have to become attached to, to, to get things done, to, to bring up children, to fulfill our work, to help our, you know, whatever situation we're involved in. And it's not, it's not only that we might feel the challenge of this, but even the Buddha himself on the night of his awakening, you know, he, 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 uh, he tasted such profound liberation. It was extremely blissful. It said that, he spent even one whole week just gazing at the Bodhi tree under which he had sat with utter devotion and with eyes unblinking. I mean, I'm sure he took a f- few blinks of his eyes, but <laughs> it's a lovely sense of this absolute absorption in the bliss of liberation and just being you know, in love with the tree that he sat under. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very beautiful sense of this communion and, you know, there was a great sense of reluctance to actually engage the world. I guess he was probably sitting there thinking about how he could, you know, go up to the Himalayas or wherever Buddhas go when they get enlightened to hang out for a, a bit and continue to taste and enjoy the peace. And, you know, while he was having that thought of retreating even further, all the devas up in the heavenly realms were kind of getting worried because, you know, this was a big event. A Buddha had been awakened and he was sitting there thinking about abdicating from being engaged in anything because it was so blissful. And so it's said that at that moment the great god Brahma Sahampati came down from the... the, uh, heavenly realms, one of the heavenly realms, so many of them, Buddhism, (laughs) and appeared before the Buddha and knelt before the Buddha and uh, pleaded and asked, you know, out of compassion for those with a little dust in the eye, please turn the wheel of the Dharma, please get out there and do your thing. 
you know, because even though you might not think that you'll have much of an effect, because the Buddha certainly felt that, he said, oh, this is too subtle. Someone was saying in one of the groups this afternoon that I was uh, facilitating that, you know, this teaching is just, does anyone really get it? (laughs) It's kind of subtle, isn't it, in a certain way, you know, it's unfathomable. You know, why bother to even do all of this? You know, it's kind of hard, actually. You know, and the Buddha felt that too. It's just, it's too hard to communicate. How can you communicate that which is actually beyond language? How can you communicate? It's a paradox. It's a constant paradox. One can never feel like you can really communicate the Dharma because the Dharma can never be captured in words. So it's not only us that might feel this tension sometimes between how to live the Dharma, how to be the Dharma. But it's said that, uh, you know, that when the Buddha considered and, you know, Brahma Sahampati in a way symbolizes the movement of compassion and the, the need actually is more than just compassion, but there's not only awakening, but there's the need to, to mature it and live it and express it within the world for it to really become durable and unshakable. So we might taste the unshakable heart when we have the conditions right, like on a retreat, but it's, the heart's still subject to being shaken when we're in contact with the world. So the real liberation is when, the most mature liberation is when the heart is in contact with the world but still able to be unshakable. This is one way that the Buddha described awakening or enlightenment, the heart in contact with the world but unshakable. The unshakable heart, the jitta, the mind that's able to remain such and present, not in spite of the world, not through avoiding the world, but in the face of the world, within the world. So the Buddha did set forth, and as is said, to turn the wheel of the Dharma, and it, as it turned out, it wasn't easy, actually. It wasn't a bed of roses by any means. You know, people criticized him, people didn't understand what he was saying, people even tried to kill him, he had to endure famines, he had to endure difficult disciples, he had to endure people betraying him, people splitting up the order, all sorts of crazy things going down. So, you know, but and yet he carried on and and did it for until he died. He carried on through forty years of, of of trying to communicate to all sorts of beings, all sorts of people that would come to him, trying to communicate this uh, way of awakening. And thank goodness he did, because we've been able to benefit on not only that, on not only the Buddha, but all the those that followed after the Buddha, or after these these uh, enlightened saints and sages that continue. Uh, to express and practice and share the teachings, share their practice, you know, so that we can benefit and in our own ways find out how to turn this wheel of the Dharma in our lives, how to bring the Dharma more and more fully in our lives so we can express it and live it for not only our own well-being but also for the well-being of the world around us. First of all, when we begin to practice, 
You know, our motivation often for many of us, if not all of us, is not to actually necessarily practice out of compassion for the welfare of the whole. We're not perhaps thinking about that. We just like to get a little peaceful. So this, uh, they talk about in Buddhist practice about the, the motivation that we begin with as we start to awaken, that it actually can deepen and become more profound. So I'd like to reflect on that, what actually helps to motivate us, because in, as we understand our motivation, it will help us. And as we understand intentionality, it will help us find that balance between letting go and engagement, between uh, release and peace and picking up and holding what needs to be cared for. So at first, you know, when we, we begin to practice, often our motivation and very much what's available to, to us in the sort of spiritual marketplace is often about you know, how to become, how to benefit ourselves, how to become more peaceful, how to become more clear, how to become awake, how to become more confident, more powerful, more creative, <laughs> more psychic. <laughs> whatever, you know, turns us on really. But there's all sorts of ways that we can, and, and things on offer to, to attract us in this way. And so we begin, we begin some kind of practice and we maybe gain some benefit and we actually can feel, uh, you know, begin to feel some improvement in our life, maybe some decrease of stress, some ability and skill in working with the cognitive realm, um, some some sense of how to uh, increase our well-being and our and the and the um, um, you know, more positive situation in our life. And this is this it's not to put that down. Actually, this is important. You know, it's just like in the meditation on loving kindness. We begin with the self. Where else to begin? In a way, you know. We begin with, uh, you know, with looking after ourselves. This is important. Sometimes, if we're too busy looking after everyone else, and we forget to take care of the self, then we just we just crash and burn. And we or we can't really effectively help anyone else. So it's really important. However, if our motivation is just about getting peaceful and getting blissed out, then we really run out of fuel as we start to meet more difficult challenges, as we come into contact with uh, suffering or, you know, or the shadow, the unconscious part of ourselves that we haven't really healed or dealt with very much. And this often happens in meditation retreat. People begin to practice and they feel quite peaceful. And then inevitably uh, the challenges come up. You know, and it's and it's not so peaceful. Or we find ourselves sitting here, and and we start to feel averse, or we feel irritable, or or we can or old memories come up, um, or deeper wounds from our childhood might emerge, or grief that we haven't really dealt with, sadness, feelings that are uncomfortable to us, and we can think at that point oh no, the meditation's wrong, it's going wrong, the retreat's wrong, the teachers are wrong, the retreat center's bad, and start thinking about, you know, what other practices we can do. You know, sort of go online and uh, 
So oh, the Tibetans look more cool than this, you know, than they are actually in many ways. And what sort of funky stuff going on? Sorts of mantras and chants and visualizations and or maybe the Hindu practice or maybe I should, you know, we can, we can start to, to feel something's gone wrong, but actually something's gone right. Yeah, this is actually what should happen. This is the fruit. The fruits of the practice aren't just bliss and light and peace. The fruits are also bringing that which has been, as Carl Jung said, that which has enlightenment isn't imagining figures of light, but bringing that which has been in the dark into the light. Yeah, so that you know, we, this is this is actually what should happen. This is the process of awakening. We're waking up to all the different dimensions of our being. So this, this, you know, as we start to, then at this point we have an opportunity to rather than just shift, like we have an opportunity in any moment when we're met, as the Buddha said, with the first noble truth of suffering. It's an opportunity. Usually our, our tendency is just to move away and quickly divert our attention distract ourselves, but it's an opportunity in the same way when we experience this in our, in our contemplative life. You know, when, when difficulty comes up, it presents us with an opportunity to deepen our motivation. You know, so our motivation then can be, rather than just looking for the pleasant, we can actually start to be more motivated to inquire to be interested, to be curious, to apply what, uh, what's called in the, in the map of awakening, the factors of enlightenment, a very important factor, which is the, the investigation of reality, to investigate, to look into the nature of things. What, what, what is happening here? What is our relationship? As Sharda talked about the other night so uh, lucidly, what is our relationship to our experience? And it's not usually so much the experience that's the problem. It's a, <clears throat> as we heard in the teaching of Ajahn Chah, Shada also mentioned, which reminded me when she mentioned that about um, when he, one of his first visits to London. And um, everyone was very excited to host this great meditation master and at that time, the first uh, monks that had come over from Thailand, the first four monks had a small vihara, monastic dwelling on ha- in Hampstead in a house, an old Victorian house in Hampstead Heath in London. So it was a summer's night, and Ajahn Chah uh, was giving this teaching, was due to give this teaching, and because it was hot, the windows were open, the room was crowded, but right across the road was a pub which at that night had a, a rock band playing. So the whole night there was this rock music playing. And of course he couldn't really give a Dharma talk and everyone got very upset. Imagine Chah just sitting there smiling. <laughs> just, uh, and at the, you know, at the end of the evening he just said, well, did that sound disturb you? <laughs> and he said, oh, did you go out and disturb the sound? You know? So this is how he would turn it around in the second motivation we realize rather than things are disturbing us or things being problems, it's not necessarily the things that are the problem. It's not necessarily the world that's the problem, but it's our relationship to it. I mean, the world is a problem, definitely. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is challenging. I mean, let's not pretend otherwise. But it becomes more workable when we can adjust our relationship, when we realize this is you know, something we can actually grow through. So in this second level of mo- uh, motivation, it's a, it's a very... Pr- it, we start to enter... A, we really enter the practice. We really start to commit at a whole other level. You know, we're no longer just sort of skimming off the surface and constantly looking for the next situation to try and milk and get a little life a little pleasant, like moving the, the things around in our life to keep us comfortable, to keep the sense of self, you know, okay. It's a bit like a, a monastic friend of ours that was teaching a retreat at, at a retreat center here in the U.S. actually. And um, there was a, some kind of stream outside of the retreat center and then during one lunch break, he, was, he saw this guy, this one of the yogis was out there moving the rocks around in the stream. And the monk went up to him and said, what are you doing? He said, well, when I, when I sit here, all I can hear is that stream bubbling away, but it's playing stars and stripes. So I'm trying to change the tune. <laughs> so that, that's kind of where we are when we don't really go deeper with our motivation, is that we're just constantly trying to change the tune, you know, flip the channel on the TV until it... You know, and it, at a certain point, it, it's exhausting, isn't it? At a certain point, it brings us here because we kind of did that enough. We've done that enough, and we've done that so much as a culture. You know, we've, we, we have the power as a culture to manipulate our whole environment uh, to enable us to feel uh, supposedly more comfortable, more safe, more secure. But we we never quite get there, do we? You know, we have a tsunami or we have an earthquake or stock market crashes. It's unpredictable. You know, so in a way we're not very mature as a culture. We're not very mature as human beings because we haven't really understood that it's not about just trying to continually control our environment to give us the optimum situation, although to a certain extent that has value, of course. But at a certain level we have to deepen to find out where is their true comfort where do we really find our home where do we really find security this is what the dharma points us to but we can't really arrive into that deeper understanding until we come to terms with this first noble truth with this challenges with the difficulties and we're not going to come to terms with the difficulties of life necessarily hold up in a in a hut somewhere that's another kind of practice, but in some ways the really fierce practice is out in the daily contact of the world where things will come to challenge us. So I shouldn't say that about staying in huts, that's a really challenging practice in and of itself. It's a different kind of challenge, but... You know, for most of us, that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with working with relationships and being in life and being in the world. As we we meditate and as we start to uh, really become more realistic and come into contact uh, and open to that which is difficult or painful or challenging or maybe our deeper patterns and wounds that emerge, tendencies towards fear or aversion, to disembodiment, to self-aversion, these very deep kind of sankharas, what's called sankharas or programs or conditionings that have been placed 
sometimes even before we opened our mouth. <laughs> As children, we land, us, we land up getting programmed and conditioned. And, you know, some of these things will come up uh, for us to, to be with and to contemplate. And it takes, you know, whether we're experiencing that internally within ourselves or whether we're experiencing that within our family, or whether we experience that in the challenges we meet in the workplace or in the world around us. It takes a lot of uh, patience and, and humility sometimes to stay with that which is difficult in order to be able to not just avoid or, or judge or go up into our head when we don't want to feel the difficulty, but to really stay with it until we learn enough skill and generate enough strength to be able to overcome the difficulty. So in this way, at first, what we might consider difficult or challenging, difficult people, challenging situations, at first it's just a drag. But again, as Ajahn Chah said, he said, well, he actually, in a way... The first part of his practice, he spent 20 or 30 years just wandering around the forests of Laos, Cambodia, Burma, Thailand. And, um, you know, that, that was tough, meeting tigers and, <laughs> you know, very, very difficult life. But he said, actually, what was really difficult was when he settled down and started to run a monastery and lived with people. He said, that was difficult. Living in communities it was really difficult. So that's what he said. That's what taught him the most. You know. So first, you know, we we might feel that things are a drag when they're difficult for us. But if we actually hone our motivation to realize that uh, that which is, uh, appears to be suffering is actually an opportunity, then we can begin to take some courage to meet the challenge rather than to keep avoiding it. There's something about, and you might have experienced this, even in your retreat here, there's something about when it's more suffering to avoid suffering than to meet suffering. You know, when, when, you know, when if, if you're sitting here and there's some discomfort and your mind is very skittish, and it's just sort of roaming around and thinking about this and thinking about that. And there's something about when you actually invite the attention to just fully be with the experience, that even though maybe there's discomfort, that it's very, you start to touch into some another dimension that you don't know about when one's really reacting. So when we meet the difficulty, we start to touch into the qualities of the heart that are actually able to rise up and meet uh, what has been, uh, at first initially seemed to be challenging. This isn't, this isn't easy because our tendencies are so, you know, we're so powerfully conditioned to avoid pain, to avoid difficulty and to seek pleasure. So Shara was saying the other night, this is our primary patterning to move you know, this constant movement backwards and forwards to, to seek out pleasant abiding, to move away from the moment, really, because often the moment is not that comfortable for us, or embodiment that's not that comfortable. However, you know, when, uh, 
when we start to, when I, you know, for example, when I was uh, first started my training in the monastery, I remember I had a, began to really understand what Ajahn Chah was talking about uh, when I was really unable to um, to move anymore. <laughs> this is the advantage of Kitty. So I was talking about working with limitations. Sometimes one will be in a situation where one can't really move away. And I, up until that moment, I'd been used to, like that guy in the stream moving the rocks around, been used to being able to just, to, to, to avoid that which has been difficult. And the circumstance arose where I'd, uh, was living with my fellow nuns about year, a year into my monastic life. And it was a very simple thing that happened, which was we, we were living for the first five years of our monastic life. We lived in a cottage. This was in England, actually. And we didn't have any electricity. And it was very cold. It'd get very cold in winter. And we had one small fire that would heat all the water. And at that time, the, the, the lifestyle was quite rigorous. We were, we were literally building the monastery. We were sitting up once a week all night. We were having one meal a day. We were staying, you know, the meditations were long. And, you know, we were sleep deprived. <laughs> I don't recommend any of this, by the way. <laughs> I, I don't know what it did for me, but anyway, it was the practice of the time. And I was sure I was getting enlightened in the process. Um, it was very much the warrior style of that forest school. And, uh, so I was doing all of this very dutifully, but actually I wasn't very well resourced in myself. You know, I just sort of walked off the hippie trail, really, you know, from going to festivals and, you know, I was sort of, this was a bit of a shock to the system. But I didn't really have any skillful ways with my, to deal with my increasing reactivity, which was, which was building up, you know, other than to try and think nice spiritual thoughts. I hadn't really understood what, really, what this deeper practice was that was being pointed to by Ajahn Chah. And one day it all came to a head for me when we, you know, it had been a really, really cold day and I'd lit the fire in the nun's cottage in the morning and I was like really looking forward to um, having a hot shower in the evening and it was another nun's duty to keep the fire going. But when I got back to the cottage, she'd let the fire out. And... um, I just, uh, I was just, I couldn't, at, at that point, the whole, the, the, the whole intensity of the life hit in that moment. Yeah, Ajahn Chah used to talk about the practice of mindfulness being preparation for the moment when it really hits, you know, <laughs> and you really, you know, you're just about to either commit murder or commit suicide. <laughs> you know, that's when you really, you really need the mindfulness so this you know little by little these moments which doesn't look very much of building mindfulness actually is very important because when those moments hit and we lose it we can really create a lot of harm for ourselves and others and that that was a moment for me but uh, you know something had seeped in of the teaching you know we were encouraged by our abbot over and over again to keep reflecting this is how it is work with how it is this is how it is in this moment I'd been coming a lot from this is how it should be (laughs) You know, I should be, you know, more spiritual and my fellow nuns should be more spiritual. And in fact, we were actually quite angry and upset and irritable and sleep deprived and stretched and hungry and, you know, crabby. 
So, you know, when, when this incident happened, I, I just, you know, just the, the level, the intensity of the, uh, the anger was very overwhelming. But it was so intense, I really realized I couldn't do anything. I couldn't act it out and I couldn't leave because I'd made a commitment to be there. But it was a very, help, it was a very important moment in my practice because, as Ajahn Chah used to say, when you can't go up and you can't go down and you can't move sideways that's when a practice can really begin. That's when this second motivation starts to deepen. And this is sometimes we have these moments on retreat, perhaps not so extreme, hopefully not so extreme. And, that, and in the scheme of things, that wasn't so extreme, actually. It can get a lot worse. <laughs> but we can have these moments, you know, when we, really, uh, when we realize that actually our strategies are not going to work, and then we have to go shift to a whole other dimension and this is really the whole area of, of deepening into our mindfulness and our capacity to meet the moment in a whole different way. And for me in that moment, it was really to, to own and acknowledge my own suffering and no longer project it out or project it onto myself, actually. But to just keep being with the energy. And as I, as I started to stay with that energy... And uh, and just really, I was like, wow, you know, this is this is where wars come from. It was fierce. You know, it was. This is where. You know, never mind lighting the fire, the nun's cottage. I was about to burn down the whole monastery. (laughs) (laughs) Had enough. (laughs) So you know, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't pretty. But it was helpful because I was really able to just sit there and, and receive and I had enough mindfulness in this practice of just breathing with the energy, with the intensity, just breathing with it, sitting with it, breathing with it. And as that started to happen, it started to really uh, almost have an alchemical effect on the heart. I actually felt it was almost like the heart was being burnt open, you know, being smelted, melted. And I started to feel, you know, I started to feel that the people that had seemed outside of myself, you know, these others that may, were making me suffering, were actually within my heart. They weren't, there wasn't anyone outside. You know, everyone is in this heart, this one heart, and there, and there, there was suffering. And, you know, at first it felt very personal. This is my suffering, and I'm going to, you know, and then, I, and then it became, this is our suffering, you know, there is suffering. There is just suffering. You know, as I started to, to really, in a certain way, I started to be inducted into this third, then the third and the most profound motivation that can start to support our practice, which is called the bodhicitta, which means not only to awaken, but to awaken into the depth of our connection with all of life. The first two motivations, we're still, in some ways, operating from the sense of me. Me, first of all, getting something that will help me become more peaceful, happy, successful, wealthy, confident, all good. If you can do it, do it. (laughs) To me, releasing myself from my suffering and working through my stuff. You know, also good, important to do. To actually, you know, as one starts to, with insight, 
one starts to see actually on 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 the on the on the level of reality there is no distinct separate me there is conventionally there is a self it's not a denial of the self the self the self and the, like, as the body it's our vehicle for our expression it has it's very unique but as we start to look from the eye of insight really start to look more and more deeply into this sense of self to see how interconnected it is with everything else, everyone else, with the trees, with the land, with the breath that we take, with the food that we eat, you know, with the culture that we've come from, with our conditioning, with the people that we share our life with, and more and more, you know, as we, in the times that we're in, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the times we're in there there's it's been easier to have the sense of the other out there but more and more it's becoming it's us (laughs) there's nowhere else to go we've run out of we're running out of resources we're running out of sustainability we're trying to go to mars for goodness sake you know we're i mean for goodness sake i mean how mad do we have to be to get the message, here we are, you know, here we are. And as we, we deepen into the reality, there is no other, there is nothing outside of this heart. So as I started to really, that night, I sat there, unable to really go anywhere anymore. And as we'll sit here in our planet, on our earth, unable to go anywhere anymore, and feel that burning... <laughs> feel the heat and the intensity of what we're moving into. You know, it's going to, there's only one place we can now ultimately go. You know, we have to go into this, uh, this deeper understanding that we're here together, you know, for, for good or for bad. And so, you know, that's uh, it's a bit of a scary thought, actually. But, but the reality, if we don't, you know, when we actually feel into that, and that night in that nun's cottage, I started to feel that the heart itself, as it was melting down and accepting the suffering, where it was taking me to was an was a empath- empathy, was a sense of, of compassion. And I started to feel suffering from compassion for this self, compassion for my sisters, compassion for all of us struggling trying to do this heroic thing of being enlightened <laughs> in England, 1970-something, West Sussex. I mean, kind of crazy, really. <laughs> Hobbit land. You know, where this, the local, one of the local upper-class ladies came to visit us one day and said, we've had our God for centuries, we don't need you. you know? <laughs> we have queen and country and God. strange (laughs) so you know it's it was you know when i when i look back on it when i think i have a lot of compassion you know for for what where we were really what what we were trying and you know if one can get enough perspective so this uh then we can you know sometimes have compassion for the poignancy of our life, of our struggling, 
to get somewhere because we don't feel we're enough yet. I loved that uh, one when I uh, where we've been living in um, South Africa for nearly 17 years now in uh, the province of KwaZulu Natal on the on the border of Lesotho in the Drakensberg Mountains. It's this ancient land. I mean, really, really ancient, and it's untouched. You know, there's. Uh, you can still, at the back of the mountain, see the dinosaur footprints. You can still see the lava from the volcanic activity. Uh, you can still see the paintings from the Khoisan, the First Nation people of that land. Uh, you can uh, still go into the wilderness and you feel the 220 million year old mountains you know, embracing you. And you look at night and the stars just go forever and in the dark, dark night. And, uh, so, and there's electrical storms that come in and crash around you with such ferocity and the rain that fills the garden makes it a swimming pool in five minutes because it's so ferocious. Yeah, it's very prime, you know, very prime, primal land. And so I've got living there when we first was. I mean, I, you know, I'm a hobbit from England. It was a little intimidating to be in this land, you know. So, but when we were first there to uh, developing the Hermitage, this land was almost gifted to us in a way. Um, I became interested about the the people that used to live there, the Khoisan, so-called Bushmen. And their paintings, was, you know, you feel their spirits, actually. These people live for 10, 20, 30,000 years. Hunters and gatherers hardly left a footprint, a mark on the, on the land that they lived on. And uh, once I, I was, had opportunity to um, spend some time with someone that had lived with Khoisan and, and gained uh, from their wisdom... And one of the um, things that they would talk about was that really our job in life is just to show up. That's it. We've done it. (laughs) Being born, we've done it. You're already here. It's enough. You just, you know, what you really need to do is show up and then let's let things happen and respond from there. I mean, I, you know, we're so far from that, aren't we? We're so far from just being enough, just showing up. You just put these layers and layers and layers on top. So this, you know, this, this uh, invitation in the Dharma, this, this third um, motivation to deepen into our compassion for each other, to, to be able to, to, uh, be with our lives to uh, meet uh, the challenges that we are going to experience to see the opportunity is not only to show up uh, for ourselves but to show up for each other. So then when we have this motivation our life, you know, rather than it being this kind of endless push and pull to avoid the difficult and to seek distraction, which is so exhausting, we just surrender to it, really. This is it. It's not going to be any different than this. (laughs) 
And, you know, it's, 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 I'm saying that as if it's easy. It's not easy, of course. But it's doable. But that's the thing of this teaching. It's not easy particularly, but it's doable. This teaching we can do, you know. So the, this cultivation of the bodhicitta, sometimes called the bodhisattva, is the conscious cultivation, the conscious putting the intention in place the most profound intention in place for our showing up, for our being in life as one of uh, being here from a place of compassion. And at first that might seem like a wishy-washy idea. Maybe it sounds like being nice. It means, does it mean we just have to be nice to people and people run us over? You know, Because that's often, as spiritual practitioners, we can sometimes feel that. I just have to be like a nice doormat. (laughs) That's compassion. And certainly I think when we first started working in South Africa, that was my idea of it. It's just to to try and help here, try and help there. And then I started to get very overwhelmed and burnt out and I realized eventually that it was really important to be able to to also part of compassion uh, was to know how to say no how to say hold boundaries, how to sometimes even be fierce, how to meet strong situations when you don't feel compassionate, when you don't feel courage. uh, One of the great inspirations for us there has been uh, Mr. Mandela, of course, and one of the things that he used to, he would talk about was that um, Courage isn't the absence of fear, but it's the willingness to to meet fear. So in this cultivation of the heart, it's not that we're not going to feel difficulty, that we're not going to feel fear or anxiety, but it's this willingness to show up to meet it that begins to grow the courage. this lovely story of, of, of Mr. Mandela that he tells about himself that he's, he's on, uh, it's after he becomes president. And, you know, this is someone that spent 27 years in prison um, and, you know, it's a, a very, uh, you know, I, I can't even imagine. I've seen the cell that he was in. It was, you know, it was about a, the size of this platform that we're sitting on. And uh, you know they they turned the prison there in Robin Island um, into a university you know, to study together to study human nature, and uh, he decided to stu- study his prisoners. He's, one of his big things was get to know your enemy, keep them close. And that's why he's such a skillful politician, actually statesman more than a politician, really. So. Um, he started to learn Afrikaans, started to get Afrikaan literature and poetry. And in spite of themselves, the guards started to respect him. They couldn't help but not respect him because of the, 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 the quality of his presence. Tremendous uh, showing up. I've seen him a few times in different events and he has this very kingly type presence, very comfortable in his skin in a way that very few people, including myself, are. <laughs> He's very much, very, 
very grounded. One, one day he was in an aeroplane, he tells his story of how he was in an aeroplane going um, to some kind of press conference and it was one of these little aeroplanes with propeller, uh, propellers, engines. Propel, um, and one of, the, one of the engines caught on fire. So he's sitting there and his bodyguards looking out and seeing this and, and, and people start to panic. So Mr. Mandela just picks up, he, one of the things he loves to do is read the morning newspaper, so he just pick up his newspaper and he's just reading it. <laughs> and people are sort of starting to freak out, does he know what's going on? And he's just sitting there, but he, the way he's just sitting there reading the paper, it starts to, and focusing, it starts to calm people down. So you know, gradually people just start to calm down, and then eventually the plane lands, and they get off the plane, and his bodyguard comes up to him and says, you know, he's like shaking. Didn't, didn't you see that? Weren't you scared? And Mr. Mano says, of course I was scared. <laughs> you know, of course I was scared. You know, so he didn't not feel it, but he met it. He met it with what was the right thing for the moment, not only for himself, but for the people around him. He was able to hold a quality of presence that was able to calm everything down. He did that for a whole country. The power of presence of one man, we might think, oh, me, in my practice, it doesn't mean very much. But we don't know when it might mean, really mean something. It means something to us in every moment, because it's the choice between suffering or not suffering. If we're mindful, then we'll reduce our suffering, there's no doubt. But we don't know the moment when it might be meaningful for, for a context that's much larger than ourselves as it was for Mr. Mandela, who he wouldn't have, how could he have guessed that he might one day walk out of that situation and be a very integral part to helping a whole country make a relatively, it wasn't totally, but a relatively peaceful transition into a, a new democracy. Just the bearing, and he's still, even he's 93, and on some level he's still holding that. So one doesn't get off lightly. There's no retirement. <laughs> so there's this lovely saying from um, from the from the Mahayana, which says the the greater the suffering, the greater the bliss. The greater the the uh, the challenge, the greater the opportunity to develop strength, to develop compassion, to develop courage. You know, but we don't start there. We don't, you know, we don't leap there. It grows. And this is, again, starting from Kirisaro's first opening talk, the encouragement of the Buddha, although the Amata Dharma, the deathless Dharma, is always here and now, it's always present. Our maturing into that, we might have moments of recognition but the unshakability of that, the real living of it, is a gradual process. You know, so we shouldn't be discouraged because in five days we didn't make it. You know, really, let's give. You know, let's get it in perspective here. You know, we have a taste. We're, we're, we're working on it together, little by little, to to mature this awakening, to ground this awakening. One of the teachings that the, the Buddha gave, and this is a teaching he gave to already enlightened beings. It's, 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 still, it's, such, it's such a beautiful teaching that it's still remembered every uh, full moon night of February. It's called the Magga Puja. 
And uh, this teaching where there was a spontaneous gathering of 1,200 arahants, I think that just meant a big number of fairly kind of mature practitioners gathered together. They didn't need an email or a you know, text message. They just spontaneously gathered together and under the full moon. And, and you think, well, what kind of teaching would, would a Buddha give to such a gathering? You know, surely it would be some subtle, esoteric, tantric kind of teaching. But, uh, what the Buddha said in this teaching is called the Awadapadimoka, which becomes the, became the framework the guideline for his future disciples, he begins this teaching by saying, patience is the ultimate practice for overcoming difficulty or unwholesome tendencies or obstructions. And the word that's used for practice is tapas, which means the burning away. That patience is is a very powerful practice in the cultivation of the Dharma. Um, He goes on to say, Nibbana is the highest happiness. We might look for happiness as we have done uh, as human beings all over the place, but we won't really find the higher happiness until we turn around, and as was encouraged last night in the teaching of Kirisara, to turn back to our true home. This is the highest happiness we can ever experience taste of Nibbāna. So this is the opening verse, but to, to taste Nibbāna, to recognize the here and now, unshakable heart, to work and mature through the material of our life, it takes, takes patience, it takes humility, and this, then we can recognize that the ground of our life becomes the ground of our practice gives us the opportunity to develop the qualities that we need to help us mature as human beings, not as some kind of ideal of a spiritual being floating on a pink cloud somewhere, which is how I started off. (laughs) I thought I'd be floating above the world and somehow go out into some cosmic... I don't know what I thought, but I certainly didn't expect what happened you know, rather than being floating on a pink cloud, as Ajahn Chah would say, I was, uh, you know, he called it the earthworm practice. I was more pulled down through the mud <laughs> of myself and everyone else. <laughs> yeah. So this, you know, to take courage to recognize that this uh, way of practice, to recognize that this time we've had together has been very blessed, that we have been able to cultivate. It's not been easy. Uh, For some of us, it's maybe been more difficult than others, but we've had the opportunity to cultivate together this ancient way of awakening. It's a great blessing. really is a great blessing to have a time and the space and the teachings and the practice to moment by moment put in place these factors of awakening you know, the most essential one being this ability to again and again remind ourselves to be here, to show up for our lives, to be present. This is how Ajahn Chah, to finish with his words, 
how he encouraged us in this way. You will reach a point in your practice where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. This is our destiny. Just sit for a moment and I have a few practical announcements before we disperse. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.